Words are powerful things. Words can rally soldiers on the battlefield, inspire athletes before the big game, fill a lover's heart, shape a child's character, and change public opinion. We remember words, their impact, how they made us feel, how they challenged us, discouraged us, inspired us, even changed the course of history. Give me liberty or give me death. I have a dream. Powerful words. Words are also authoritative things. We the jury find the defendant guilty. I now pronounce you man and wife, husband and wife. Words are powerful. Words are authoritative. And yet human words are so very limited in power and authority. Can any person's words always and unconditionally accomplish their purpose? Emperors are defied. Parents are disobeyed. Bosses are ignored. Fugitives evade the judge's sentence. People are ridiculed when they tell the truth. Words are powerful things, authoritative things, but no one's words are entirely efficacious. Meaning, no one's words always and unconditionally accomplish their purpose. But there is one whose words are entirely efficacious. His words always and unconditionally accomplish their purpose. His words brought the universe from nothing and His words uphold every atom in the universe. By His word, a centurion's beloved servant was immediately healed of deadly and painful paralysis. He speaks he decrees, He commands, and it is done. What does that tell us about Jesus? In Matthew 9, Jesus heals a paralytic to confirm that He has authority to forgive sins. So since by His power and authority, Jesus healed a centurion slave with a word, He is also able to rescue us from the devastating effects and consequences of our sin and renew us into His image with a word. It's easy for us to doubt that the word of Christ is sufficient to change us. Our expectations of the power and authority of the word of Christ are often low, but Matthew has given us ample reason to have confidence in the power, authority, and sufficiency of the word of Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel gets it entirely wrong because its predominant focus is on the outer self, which is wasting away. Jesus will not heal all of our ailments in this life, but He is, brothers and sisters, by His Word, renewing His people day by day. Paul said in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Jesus is restoring and renewing us day by day with His Word. So here's my main point. With humble and heartfelt longing, Plead with Jesus 
to renew you through His powerful and authoritative Word. If you truly long to be renewed, to be made new, to be transformed, then you must trust Christ to do it by His Spirit through His Word. So the public reading and the public preaching of the Word of Christ is where your King exercises His power and authority to renew you. So, so I would love for you to leave here today more confident and more hopeful that the powerful and authoritative Word of Christ is sufficient and efficacious to renew you. Here are some background details that I hope serve to increase your amazement at this narrative. Matthew began his gospel with these words, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew linked Jesus back to God's covenant and messianic promises to David and Abraham. In Genesis 12 verse 3, God promised Abraham, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham in whom the nations are blessed. The Reformation Study Bible notes this, in addition to showing Jewish readers that God's covenant with Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus, Matthew reminds them that this covenant had always been directed toward blessings, blessing for all nations, as the Lord had promised Abraham. Be alert then for how Jesus blesses the nations in Matthew's Gospel. We, we must also observe how Jesus is the Messianic King promised to David. The Reformation Study Bible adds, Central to Matthew's theology is the theme that Jesus is the promised Davidic King who has come to redeem His people and establish His kingdom of righteousness. From the opening identification of Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, to the opening message of repentance in the light of the kingdom's arrival, to the end of the gospel, Matthew argues that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies, institutions, offices, landmark events, and other anticipatory patterns in Israel's history. End quote. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the promised Messiah King and as the promised Messiah King is blessing the nations by rescuing them from their sin and misery and bringing them into His kingdom of righteousness. So, where do we see Jesus blessing Gentiles in Matthew's Gospel? In chapter 1, Gentiles are part of Jesus' genealogy. In chapter 2, Gentiles from the east bow in worship before the child king in a manger. In chapter 4, to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus moves to Capernaum in Galilee of the Gentiles to be the great light shining on the Gentiles. At the end of chapter 4, the fame of Jesus spreads to the Gentiles. And in chapter 8, Jesus says a word and a Gentile Roman centurion's slave is miraculously healed. Can you see it? God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled. The Messiah had come and was blessing the Gentiles by graciously bringing them into his kingdom of righteousness. This account of the centurion, it also helps develop the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
See, entrance into the kingdom of God is not a matter of Jewish privilege or law-keeping or else the centurion would be completely hopeless. Entrance into the kingdom is a matter of faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the centurion had great faith. Centurions were officers in the Roman army. They commanded 80 to 100 soldiers. They were leaders with great responsibility. Centurion was the highest rank a non-commissioned Roman soldier could attain. I read that a, centur a centurion's authority was actually quite extensive because he was the working officer who had direct contact with the men. He went to the, the field with them and made spontaneous decisions according to each situation. To be a centurion was prestigious, and the pay was excellent. And so centurions were often career soldiers. Centurions couldn't legally marry during their service to Rome, though some took concubines. So they didn't really have wives and families, and that's an important detail for our story. For Jews, centurions pictured subjection to a superior nation. Centurions were also unclean because they were uncircumcised pagans. Jesus' inclusion of Gentiles in his kingdom was scandalous for Jews. But see, God's gospel promise was to bless the nations in Abraham's seed. So let's unpack how Jesus interacted with this Gentile centurion. Number one, this centurion's need. Verses 5 and 6. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Um, you know what? I forgot to read Luke 7. I was supposed to do that. It was printed right there. And that's key at this point that I'm about ready to make. But anyway, let me just say this since I forgot that. Read Luke 7, 1 through 10 sometime. Luke gives details that Matthew intentionally left out. That's, that's the point that I wanted you to hear in hearing the text. So... If we take Luke 7, 1 through 10, alongside Matthew 8, 5 through 13, we get a fuller picture of what was going on. The sick servant was highly valued by the centurion. The word servant in verse 6 is the same word for boy, which seems to be a term of endearment. This slave was important to the centurion, like family. The centurion likely didn't have family, perhaps like his own son. Luke records that the centurion had sent agents to Jesus in his place. Well, Matthew leaves that out. The centurion sent a group of Jewish elders to Jesus to have him come and heal his servant. When they got fairly close to the centurion's home, he sent his friends out to Jesus, and the centurion simply wanted Jesus to say the word to heal his servant. When you compare Luke 7 and Matthew 8, like me, you might sense a little bit of discomfort at the fact that the accounts seem to disagree. But remember that when someone appoints an agent to speak and act on their behalf, they are speaking and acting through their agent that they sent. For example, John 19.1 says that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Well, Pilate himself didn't flog Jesus. He appointed agents to flog him. The agents acted on behalf of Pilate. It's the same for the centurion. So this powerful and reputable military officer, this compassionate and reputable man, was in a position of need. Luke 
says that the servant was sick and at the point of death he was thrown down and tortured with a crippling disease but the centurion couldn't heal him but the centurion knew Jesus could simply say a powerful and authoritative word and heal his servant broken probably quite worried and fearful the centurion in faith presented his need to Jesus when Jeremiah was a newborn, we were concerned about his health, a certain issue that he was having, and, and took him to Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, and he needed an IV. As a newborn, that's difficult. And they were having trouble inserting the nurses, inserting this IV, and my beloved son was getting jabbed with needles and was screaming, and his father was fuming. I was very upset. And and so when, when a loved one is ill, and worse yet, when a loved one is deathly ill, we can feel so helpless. And their condition and our helplessness often provokes in us deep emotion that comes out. It was likely so for this centurion. The more I understand Scripture, and the more I mature in my Christian faith, I'm realizing how important, how essential in fact it is to recognize our need before the Lord. We are poor in spirit. We are needy. We are destitute of all that is good. And to, to truly come to Jesus is to come to Jesus with great need. It, it's, it's to come to Jesus appealing, Lord, I have nowhere else to go. You're, you're the only one who can help me. Well, that was the Gentile centurion's heart. Number two, the centurion's humility. The centurion's humility is evident in various ways. First, he was coming to Jesus to make an appeal because he himself could do nothing. He, his need was part of his humility. He was a, a powerful man, but in this case, a very vulnerable man. Second, he addressed Jesus as Lord. That's astonishing, and that's significant in at least two ways. Lord was a respectful term used for a superior as a way to show honor. The, the centurion was a great military commander of Rome, a man of power in Capernaum and in the Roman Empire, and he addressed Jesus with respect and honor as his superior. Also, by using Lord, he may have meant the Lord, as in a worshipful address to deity. Whatever exactly he meant, it showed tremendous humility. Third, look at verse 8. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He recognized his unworthiness. Hmm. Poor in spirit. Why would Jesus, a great Jewish prophet and healer, come and do something for him, an uncircumcised and unclean Gentile? He was humble before the Lord. Fourth, he said, I too am a man under authority. Though a leader, where did he begin? He began with his submission. And by saying this, he accepted that Jesus possessed the authority of God. D.A. Carson noted this, quote, This means that the centurion's words presuppose an understanding of the Roman military system. All authority belonged to the emperor and was delegated. Therefore, because he was under the emperor's authority, when the centurion spoke, he spoke with the emperor's authority, and so his command was obeyed. A foot soldier who disobeyed would not be defying a mere centurion, but the emperor, Rome itself, 
with all its imperial majesty and might. This self-understanding the centurion applied to Jesus. Precisely because Jesus was under God's authority, he was vested with God's authority so that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. To defy Jesus was to defy God. And Jesus' word must therefore be vested with God's authority that is able to heal sickness. End of quote. Calvin said there was astonishing humility in exalting so highly above himself a man who belonged to a conquered and enslaved nation. End of quote. This Gentile Roman centurion was demonstrating the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, unworthy, meek, coming to the Lord in faith. Well, brothers and sisters, the kingdom belongs to such as this centurion. And Jesus confirmed this by saying, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. The kingdom belongs not to physical descendants of Abraham, but to those who humbly come to Jesus in true and saving faith. I love Christmas. And a sense of entitlement ruins Christmas gift giving. Have you ever thought about that? Imagine someone opening your gift and, and saying, Man, it's about time you got me these socks. You get socks for each other? I don't know. Well, it kind of sucks the joy. Entitlement kind of sucks the joy out of Christmas gift giving. But if the gift is received with humility and thankfulness and joy in the gift giver, what a pleasure Christmas gift giving can be. Do you approach Jesus from a position of great need and humility? Do you come to Jesus recognizing your unworthiness? Is your heart prostrated before the Lord asking, just say the word, heal me, make me like you, renew me, Lord? Number three, the centurion's faith. This is a big point. The centurion said, only say the word and my servant will be healed. In verses 9 and 10, the centurion compared his lesser authority to Jesus' greater authority in order to express his faith, or we could say confidence, in Jesus' divine authority to heal and renew. The centurion could order 80 to 100 men and they would respond, but Jesus could simply will it, could simply say the word and his servant would be miraculously healed. The centurion knew that he was under the authority of Rome, but he believed that Jesus was under the authority of God. The centurion believed this man, this is a man sent from God with the will and the power and the authority of God. This is a man whose words are infused with God's will, God's power, God's authority. Luke records that when the elders of the Jews went from the centurion to Jesus, they told Jesus, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Well, their words reveal the heart this man had for God, and God's covenant people, and, and God's worship and, and word. He was drawn to the gospel presented in Old Covenant Judaism. And when that gospel came close to him, when the kingdom was in his midst, he knew it. He believed. He sought the power and authority of Jesus to serve and bless him, a Gentile. Notice that he said, And my servant will be healed. That's incredible faith. 
he believed that if Jesus willed it, if Jesus spoke it, it would be done. And what happened? What he believed could be done for him was done for him. Well, what did this true faith say about the impact Jesus had on the centurion's heart? His servant was healed, but what does this true faith say about what Jesus did in his heart? And Calvin rightly said, before Christ healed his servant, he had been healed by the Lord. This was itself a miracle. One who belonged to the military profession and who had crossed the sea with a band of soldiers for the purpose of accustoming the Jews to endure the yoke of Roman tyranny submits willingly and yields obedience to the God of Israel. And the, the faith of the centurion is evidence of the healing of the Lord. Let us have this kind of great faith because, brothers and sisters, we too have been healed by the Lord. Dear saints, dear brothers and sisters, let our prayers for God to heal us be pervaded with this kind of confidence, and I will be healed. Four, the astonishment of Jesus. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marveled. He was amazed at the faith of the centurion. And imagine how his Jewish followers felt hearing that. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. He was talking about an uncircumcised and unclean Gentile. In, in Romans 9, 4 and 5, Paul says of ethnic Jews, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But with all their privilege as God's chosen nation, Israel failed in the covenant. They failed to do the law, and they failed to receive the promised Messiah by faith. But Matthew presents in his gospel an unclean Gentile receiving grace from Christ with more faith than any in Israel. Astonishing. It, it reveals one of Matthew's key points in the gospel, or in his gospel. Jesus extends his grace and blessing. He extends his kingdom to the nations. The eternal redemptive plan of God is to save Jews and Gentiles and makes them one kingdom people. We must not ever divide the one true covenant people of God, the people who trust the Messiah. Paul in Ephesians 3, 6 says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Matthew is showing that even a Gentile Roman centurion is included in the kingdom of God by faith in the gospel. Carson says, but these verses affirm in a way that could only shock Jesus' he hearers that the locus of the people of God would not always be the Jewish race. God's covenant of grace has always been from the beginning about the nations. Racisms, 
been a hot topic in society recently. Racism of any kind is an abomination and is antithetical to the gospel. Now carefully consider this. Circumcision never brought any Jew into the kingdom of heaven nor did uncircumcision ever exclude any Gentile from the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of circumcision or law-keeping, not a matter of ethnicity, it's a matter of true faith in the gospel covenant promises of God and the Messiah. The centurion's faith is evidence that God reaches out His grace in Christ to the nations and redeems His people from the nations. Which means, within the kingdom of heaven, within the kingdom of God, within the kingdom of Christ, are Africans, Asians, Americans, Arabs, Europeans. This is the beauty of God's saving grace. The beauty of God graciously reaching into diversity and bringing salvific unity in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Racism is ignorance of and contempt for the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. By including this event of Jesus' compassion for Gentiles, Matthew is continuing to prove that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the one who brings salvation and blessings to the nations. And this salvation and blessing is ours, brothers and sisters, if we come to Christ in faith as the centurion did. The kingdom is ours, not, not by ethnic privilege, not by law-keeping, but by humbly receiving God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, by simple and true faith as the one who meets our deepest needs. Number five, the judgment of Jesus. Behind Matthew's account of the centurion's faith is Isaiah 25, 6-11. Just listen to these verses. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Brothers and sisters, God does this for the nations. And the nations rejoice in faith. Now, if Jesus' statement in verse 10 did not perplex and offend His Jewish followers, what He said in verses 11 and 12 sure did. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an alarming statement about God's judgment and hell. Jesus is quite clear. Gentiles will come from east and west and join the patriarchs at the king's table in the kingdom as fellow heirs. But the sons of the kingdom, 
which, which was a Semitic term for national Israel, will be excluded from the kingdom. He said, outer darkness, which conjures images of being cut off, because of their unbelief, their unbelief, their, their rejection of the Messiah, the physical descendants of Abraham, ethnic Jews, will be thrown, the word pictures here, an aggressive heave into hell to suffer God's judgment forever. The, the picture of their eternal torment is frightening, weeping and gnashing of teeth, or agony, anguish, pain and misery forever. We have to think carefully about this. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not inherit the kingdom of heaven because of their ethnic status, but because of their faith in God's covenant promises and coming Messiah. It was God's grace at work in their life. John made this clear in his gospel when Jesus told ethnic children of Abraham that they were actually not children of Abraham, but children of the devil. Why? That was because of their unbelief. Ethnic privilege gets you nowhere in the kingdom. Faith, true faith, saving faith, obtains the kingdom. Matthew is shining the light on the Gentiles' faith, this Roman centurion's faith, to make a very significant point about the gospel of the kingdom. We avoid God's judgment and sit happily with the patriarchs at the table of the king in the king's kingdom believing by believing in Jesus Christ the Lord and humbly receiving Him by faith. There is no other way to be blessed by God, no other way to enter the kingdom, no other way to get the benefits of Christ than by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the way. Six, the authority of Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. It was the will of Jesus to heal the centurion's servant by the power and authority of his word. Verse 13 says, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Can you see how the power and authority of Jesus are filled with love and compassion? Many people detach power and authority from love and compassion. Well, we can't do that with Jesus. Listen, Jesus responds to those who trust Him. Jesus works by His grace through faith. Through faith. Jesus could have healed the servant even if the centurion was an unbelieving pagan. He has the power and the authority to do that. But the blessings of God in Christ flow to believers through faith. If you believe like the centurion did, it, it does not mean Jesus will heal you of cancer or heart disease or COPD or aging or anything else. He might not in this life. But what it does mean is that if you believe like the centurion did, Jesus will heal your soul. And eventually your body at the resurrection. The centurion's servant and the centurion died sometime after this event. But I believe, at least for the centurion, this miracle contributed to his the, the continual renewal of his soul. So here's what you need to understand. Christ's word is efficacious and sufficient to heal and save. 
since he has the power and authority to say the word and heal a centurion's servant, by his word he has the power and authority to heal your soul, to overcome your sin and misery, and to bring you safely, dear ones, into his kingdom, to sit with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob at the table of your king. The heart of Jesus before his Father in all eternity was, I will go and heal them. I will go and heal them, possessing all the power and authority of God Himself. Jesus our King has come to heal and restore and renew us by His powerful and authoritative Word. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul wrote, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is so powerful and efficacious, it saves and renews the soul. Paul encouraged the Thessalonian church with these words, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what do these verses tell you about the power and authority of Christ's Word? What do they tell you about how Jesus treats those people who come humbly to Him with heartfelt longing, pleading for Him to renew them through His powerful and authoritative Word? What does it tell you about Jesus? And I think most of us here this morning, if not all of us here, would say that there is power and authority in the words of Jesus. But, then when we consider our besetting sins, or emotional turmoil, or psychological troubles, or a disturbed soul, we often doubt the power, authority, and sufficiency of the words of Christ. Many Christians will intellectually affirm the power, authority, and sufficiency of the words of Christ, but then live in a way that suggests otherwise that, that they're looking around for other things to do it. Other things to change them. And so I want to encourage you this morning with, with this message, with this last point. Let it be done for you as you have believed. Let it be done for you as you have believed. All of us here today have deep needs. I mean deep, deep needs. You are poor in spirit. You are unworthy to receive grace. Without faith, without faith, without God's grace, your end is certain. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, that's for churchgoers, Sunday school teachers, pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries, tithers who don't have true faith. But as we come to Jesus with our great need, humbled, meek, poor in spirit, as we come to Jesus unworthy, with the open and empty hands of faith, longing and pleading to receive from the Lord just a, just a little bit of His grace, longing and pleading to be renewed after His image, well, His message is quite simple for us. Let it be done for you as you have believed. Let it be done for you as you have believed. It was not the centurion's faith that performed the miracle. It was not his faith which caused the miracle. His faith was not even worthy of the miracle. 
D.A. Carson is spot on when he says Jesus performed a miracle not in proportion to the centurion's faith nor because of the centurion's faith but in content what was expected by the centurion's faith. The centurion simply received the grace that he believed. So do you believe you will receive the grace that God promised you in Christ when that which you believe in the centurion believed, but didn't know if it was God's will. How much more do we have in Scripture when we know what the will of God is for us? He tells us He is going to restore us and renew us, those who have faith. Do you believe in that grace? Do you believe you will receive what you believe? So with humble and with heartfelt longing, plead with Jesus to renew you through his powerful and authoritative word. And then receive by faith what you believe. And be oh so grateful and thankful. Receive the word of Christ and believe that your Lord is renewing you through faith. Words are powerful. Words are authoritative. And the powerful and authoritative words of Christ are sufficient to renew you into the image of your Creator.